We enter into the book of Acts today after reading through the Gospels um, as we hear these stories from the early church. Our scripture from Acts 4 is the continuation of the story that the girls just read um, about the healing of the crippled man. And I invite you to hear these words this morning. Peter says, Now, Lord, take note of their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with complete confidence. Stretch out your hand to bring healing and enable signs and wonders to be performed through the name of Jesus, your holy servant. After they prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking God's word with confidence. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them all. There were no needy persons among them. Those who owned properties or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds from the sales, and place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, that is, one who encourages, was a Levite from Cyprus. He owned a field, sold it, brought the money, and placed it under the care and the authority of the apostles. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The book of Acts is actually on its own as a genre in the Bible. It is part two, or the sequel, of the Gospel of Luke. It is written very much in the same style as Luke's Gospel, with similar concerns. The only difference is that the main characters who we follow through Acts are not Jesus, but the apostles. Because Jesus has ascended into heaven in the first few verses, now Luke writes to tell us about the apostles and the early church after Jesus ascends. The main way that we know about Peter's leadership and about Paul's salvation and his missionary journeys throughout the Roman world are from this book of Acts. When we read Acts, it at times sounds like a superhero story. The apostles are performing miracles, just like Jesus did. They seem almost superhuman. After all, who could do these incredible things? Healing the sick and casting out demons. The only thing is, these apostles are not superhuman. These are the same apostles who we read about in Luke's Gospel. The same Peter who was impetuous and would deny Jesus as he went to the cross. The same apostles who wanted special places at Jesus' right hand and left hand and argued about it. The same apostles who did not understand when it happened that Jesus had risen from the dead. In our scriptures today from the book of Acts, Peter and John heal a crippled man. This act alone was amazing and was enough to continue to witness to God's power at work through the apostles. But some of the Jewish leadership is not happy about the preaching of Peter. In fact, the Sadducees arrest Peter and John right after this event, right on the spot, 
because they firmly disagreed with the notion that the resurrection of the dead was happening because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. While Peter and John are in prison, the leaders of the Jews, not just the Sadducees, challenge Peter and John. They want to know by what power or in what name they healed the crippled man. Peter and John declare that it is by the power of Jesus who brings salvation for all. And the Jewish leaders want to stomp this out. They do not want this message about Jesus to spread any further. So they demand that Peter and John will no longer speak and teach in the name of Jesus. That's where we find ourselves in the story today. Peter and John have been released and warned to not do any more work in the name of Jesus. And while reporting to their community what happened, Peter and John say these words. Now, Lord, take note of their threats, that is, the threats from these Jewish leaders, and enable your servants to speak your word with confidence. Stretch out your hand to bring healing and enable signs and wonders to be performed through the name of Jesus, your holy servant. In other words, Peter and John are asking for the strength to continue this powerful ministry of Jesus even when faced with direct threats. They will not back down. And what happens? It says, after they prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking God's word with confidence. This is evidence that God is doing something, that God is empowering the church to continue the work of Jesus. So friends, here's what I want you to hear above all else today. God wants to do far more through the church than is humanly possible. Right after the Holy Spirit shakes the ground where the church is gathered, we hear a description about what the church acted like. And this summary statement sets the ground for the rest of the book of Acts. It describes the activity of the church as something that is beyond any one person's power. In these verses, we hear four ways that Jesus is empowering his church. The first one is this. They were one in heart and mind. Verse 32 begins, the community of believers was one in heart and mind. That alone sounds like a miracle, like we should probably just stop at number one, because being one in heart and mind feels all but impossible today. We live in a world where the focus is on division. The campaign attack ads are on right now, and some of those seem to want to convince me that if I vote for the other person, it is a vote for the literal antichrist. If I vote, then I vote for pedophilia and crime on our streets. Now, this division in political attack ads is nothing new, but the vitriol is intense. And it makes it seem like only one side could possibly be the correct option. Now, if we thought this division just remained in the political realm and sphere, don't be deceived. It exists strongly in the church as well. And we Methodists are doing a great job at stoking the fires of division. I was interviewed for a News and Observer article a few months ago about this division, and my interview definitely wasn't included because I wasn't inflammatory enough, giving enough hot takes. On the surface, this division that is getting presented is about human sexuality. But you don't have to be very smart to recognize that the division is more about power and trying to make sure that everyone sees things the right way, which is code for my way, 
The reality is, no one has ever thought just alike about issues in the church since its beginning. In every decade, there are new ideas and philosophies to consider and to contend with. John Wesley, the founder of our movement, famously said in the 1700s in his sermon, The Catholic Spirit, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. Though we may not think, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. Wesley acknowledged in that sermon that we will never all agree on every specific matter of doctrine. And the challenge is to love in spite of that. In his book that just came out regarding this contention within United Methodism, Bishop Will Williman wrote this. Think what you're asking of people when they join a church. To believe that there's a gathering more important than their nation, political party, or even their family to give money for the needs of perfect strangers, to stay in conversation with those who are put off by their politics, to receive the gospel of God from the hands of another who may not be their type. It's so much easier to leave than to stay. Little wonder that more people exit, not for another denomination, but to leave church altogether." End quote. It's so much easier to leave than to stay, Willimon writes. Friends, it's easier to throw stones at the divisions of politics within our world or the big capital C church. But we can't even agree with the families around our dinner table. We aren't one in heart and mind with our very families, and we definitely aren't one with our church family. It's tempting for us to just get along by ignoring our differences and not talking about hard things, but the work of Jesus through the church was to make them of one heart, to help them discern together how they would move forward. Friends, in order for us to be one, we need the uniting power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this alone. For God wants to do far more through the church than is humanly possible. The next thing we learn about Jesus and how he was empowering his church was this. It says they held everything in common. In the text it says, none of them would say this is mine about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. Now hold up, is this passage saying that the early church was socialist? I don't think this is a prescriptive description for us about economic systems. Free market capitalism and Marxism were not economic theories in the year AD 30. Rather than getting caught up in an argument about economic theory, this is a picture of God's abundance. For in God's realm, in God's kingdom, there is always enough. But the way to that enough is for everyone to share. Willie Jennings, a wonderful theologian, comments on this passage. He says, these followers of Jesus released themselves to one another, making themselves responsible for and accountable to one another. Money here will be used to destroy what money normally is used to create, distance and boundaries between people. Too often in our reading of this story, our view is clouded by the spectacular giving, and we miss the spectacular joining. Those who have must join those who do not have. Jennings says three very important things while reflecting on the idea about the church holding everything in common. First, he says, they released themselves to each other. Friends, when we join the church community, we are truly releasing ourselves to each other. At least that's the ideal. It means that I weep 
when you do, and I celebrate when you do. It means that we join a community of empathy, not just a place where we come weekly to fulfill a religious duty. Jennings also writes that by holding everything in common, that money will destroy the distance and boundaries it usually seeks to create. When we are generous, whether that is generosity with our giving here locally at the church, or generosity towards direct needs that we know about and see in the community, we begin to destroy the class system that keeps people apart from one another. By holding everything in common, the early disciples were connected to one another regardless of social status. Jennings also emphasizes that God's work was not so much in the giving, but in the joining together. A community that's empowered by Jesus is joined together in Jesus. The church at its best brings together diverse peoples with diverse perspectives who are joined together through Christ. Now, lest we think that sharing like this was easier way back then, our text today is immediately followed by a story of a couple, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, who did not share. They lied about how much they had sold a piece of property for and held some of the money back for themselves, and they immediately dropped dead. Now, so it was hard for people to share back then, just like it is now. But it feels like stepping on toes for us to talk about money in church. The reason why I think we're so apprehensive about money in the church is because we have to overcome our deeply held notions of individualism. We as 21st century Americans believe that money is ours. Ours to gain, ours to spend, ours to share when we want to and we feel like it. But no one should tell us how to do that. But if in the church we are truly connected to one another, then we have to unlearn these patterns of individualism and learn to share in common with one another. That will take a big God-sized work within us and within our community. But God wants to do far more through the church than is humanly possible. Jesus also empowered this church then to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The text says the apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Friends, remember, this was in the face of suffering and threats. The context for the apostles to bear witness to the resurrection was this. They were going to be snuffed out if they followed through with what the Jewish leadership wanted. They would be a one-generation sect of Judaism that would have died out with them. This was at stake during this time. And the apostles could not do this work of bearing witness to Jesus by their own strength and power. Willie Jennings once again writes, he says, the modern lie of individualism is most powerful when we imagine that boldness comes from within. It does not. It comes from without, from the Spirit of God. They see the threat, they pray, and they ask for boldness. This moment sets the template for the movement, for any movement that is of Jesus. Friends, boldness comes from the Spirit of God. Notice the apostles don't pray that the threat will be removed. Rather, they pray that they will speak boldly in the face of threats against their very lives. Jesus promised that his followers would face persecution and trouble. But we want a religion that promises that we escape all of that trouble. Any presentation of a so-called Christianity that does not face trouble or persecution from the powers that be, but insists on a better life and self-improvement, is not the way of Jesus. Notice, the apostles are not empowered simply to preach. 
No, they are empowered specifically to preach and to witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Our faith wholly depends on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. But we hardly talk as Christian people about the resurrection. We talk about the cross, sure. We talk about living better lives or even being made holy. But all of that is only possible through the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Our only hope is in Jesus' resurrection. The reason why we gather together and we are different from any other institution is because we believe in a risen Savior. To witness to an actual belief in Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection will take some empowering. But God wants to do far more through the church than is humanly possible. The fourth way Jesus empowers the church in this passage is this. It says, an abundance of grace was at work among them all. An abundance of grace. What is grace? The best way that I know how to understand grace is the movement of God in our lives. So grace is the drawing close of us to God's very self. If God is drawing the individuals in the community closer to God's self, then the people are brought closer to one another. I want to be part of a community where an abundance of grace is at work among all. I can't say that I ever truly have. I've seen fleeting glimpses of that type of grace. But in this church community described in Acts, God's activity was noticeable, palpable, and real. Our problem? We're not convinced that God is still acting in noticeable, palpable, and real ways in our midst. When people or churches claim to have experiences of God that are noticeable, palpable, and real, I sometimes question those experiences. I look at them with suspicion and wonder if someone was manipulated in the process. I'm not sure if we really want the reality of God's presence or if we just want church to be tidy and nice and not step on our toes. For if the God of the universe actually gets involved with us when we gather, some interesting and unpredictable things are going to happen. For God wants to do far more through the church than is humanly possible. I want to encourage us today to not dismiss the book of Acts by saying things like, well, this is clearly an exaggeration. No actual community acted like this. Or, these people directly knew Jesus. Of course they had powerful experiences of God. Or, times have changed and we aren't called to really live like this. I would like us to receive the invitation of the Church of Acts instead of dismissing it. They are inviting us to follow their example of being empowered by Jesus and having that empowerment change the way that we live. So we would be unified even though we are different. So we would share even though we come with different amounts in our bank accounts. So we would witness to the power of Jesus' resurrection even though he isn't physically with us. So we would experience God's grace working in real ways in our midst. Friends, what if God is ready to move and work through the church? And what if we simply aren't letting God do it? 
God wants to do far more through the church than is humanly possible. More than we could ever ask or imagine. Amen.